I was at Medina del Campo, establishing the second foundation of discalced Carmelite nuns, when, one afternoon, there happened to arrive a young Carmelite priest who was studying in Salamanca. With him, there was a companion, Fray Pedro de Rosco, who told me great things about the life this young priest was leading. His name is Fray Juan de la Cruz. I praised our Lord, and when I spoke to this young friar, I liked him very much. He confided to me that he was preparing to leave the Carmelites and join the Carthusians because of their stricter, more primitive rule. I described to him then what I had in view by way of reform for both nuns and priests within the Carmelite order and begged him earnestly to wait until the Lord gave us a monastery. I pointed out what a great blessing it would be if he were destined for a higher life, that he should lead it within his own order, and how much better service it would thus render to the Lord. He gave me his word to do this, provided there were no long delay. When I saw that I had two friars to make a beginning with, the thing seemed to me settled, although I was not quite satisfied with the prior. So, for this reason, and also because as yet I had no place to begin in, I waited for some little time. That was the first meeting of Sister Teresa of Jesus, Teresa of Avila, or La Madre as she was affectionately known, with John of the Cross. She had already begun her programme for the reforming of the rule for the Sisters of the Carmelite Order and was about to embark on a similar project for the Carmelite friars. She was 52 years old at the time and had been a Carmelite nun for 33 years. John was 25, just newly ordained a Carmelite priest, but already disenchanted with a rule that had been mitigated and softened over the years. From early on in my novitiate, I craved a return to the primitive rule of the original Carmelites, I considered that, with constant mitigation and lightning, the emphasis had shifted too much from the contemplative to the apostolic. Consequently, the plan which La Madre outlined to me at our first meeting was one in which I was in wholehearted accord and eager to be part of. It will be a return to the primitive rule, with contemplative prayer and silence the basis of the lifestyle. While the nuns of the Reform will remain cloistered, the friars will still engage in apostolic activity. Religious dress will change for both, from the soft, full habits now in use by the Carmelites to habits coarser, heavier and less ample. The nuns and friars of the Reform will not wear shoes, and fast and abstinence will be strict. Both John and Teresa had come from similar backgrounds, the ancestors in both cases being upper-middle-class merchants. However, because his father had been orphaned in early life and had married beneath him, John had been reared in extreme poverty, his father having been disowned by the family. Fortunately, he was a bright boy, his high-mindedness and seriousness attracting the right kind of patrons, who ensured that he had a good education. Teresa grew up in an affluent, cultured society, and at the age of 19, when she entered the Carmelite order, could have become one of Avila's leading young socialites. But John and Teresa had one other common denominator. They were both conversos, 
their grandparents on the paternal side had been Jews who converted to Christianity. For many years hiding their roots well as the Inquisition kept such people under constant surveillance. To have had Jewish blood however many generations back made the conversos suspect and inhibited them in achieving any positions of civil or ecclesiastical power. Indeed, this Jewish ancestry shared by John Teresa probably enhanced the depth of their faith, the brilliance of their intellect and the sublimity of their spiritual intuition, very similar to that found among the great and venerable mystics of ancient Israel. Our home in the small town of Fonteveras, north of Madrid, resembled a small weaving factory. For my father, Gonzalo de Apes, and my mother, Catalina, had married for love, and love was always the principal element in our home. They earned a meagre living as weavers, and because of my father's ill health, I was from an early age required to assist them in their work. Coloured threads, spools, and the remnants of woven cloth littered our living room. The odours of cooking blended with the warm, sweet smells of the yarn, and I never tired of the musical rattle of the looms and shuttles moving along the unfolding cloth near the deft and expert fingers of my father and mother. With my brothers Louis and Francisco, I would help them dress the looms. John's father, Gonzalo, specialised in weaving the material for bonnets and delicate veils for the ladies of the region. Intricate designs executed with richly coloured yarns. Many years later, writing his mystical poetry, John was to remember his childhood at the weaver's loom. In The Living Flame, he writes, Bring all, if you will, to a happy ending. Break the veil of this sweet encounter. The Spanish word from which veil is translated specifically refers to the various threads set into the weaver's loom. Our flowery bed, bound with dens of lions, is hung with purple built up in peace, and crowned with a thousand shields of gold. And the colours and motifs in that stanza from his spiritual canticle certainly reflect the influence on his writing of the weaver's sensitivity to colour and design. John was eight years old, his father, worn out from undernourishment and overwork, died. His mother, desperate and destitute now, turned for help to her late husband's family. She assumed that, after so many years and Gonzalo's death, the enmities and divisions caused in the family by their marriage might have been forgotten. She was wrong. She had not considered how intransigent and intractable and unforgiving the close, and closed family circle could be. No help was forthcoming, so... With great reluctance and sadness we left our old home at Fontenveras and moved to the city of Medina de Campo. It was difficult for my mother to leave because Fontenveras held so many memories for her. There she had met and fallen in love with my father. There her children had been born. It was her home and she was broken-hearted.
The move to Medina del Campo was a crucial one for the whole family, but particularly for young John. It was to give him a wider window on life and help form his character in a very definite way. This was one of the most dynamic periods in the history of Spain. Isabella and Ferdinand, after years of struggle, had achieved their goal of a united nation. Granada, freed at last of Moorish control, was part of Spain again. Art and culture flourished. Spain's influence extended all over Europe and into the New World. The ports flourished again with import and export trade. Now Medina del Campo, though not a port city, was the centre for a huge international trade fair, held twice a year. The city was host to thousands of people from many different countries, merchants and financiers bartering goods from the east, spices and silks, and cloth and books from the New World. The nine-year-old boy was very susceptible to this stimulating milieu. At a time when news spread mainly through domestic and foreign visitors, John listened to stories of the Americas and Indies from those who had actually been there. He knew what was happening politically, religiously and socially by just listening and observing. My first formal education was at the Collegio della Doctrina in Medina del Campo. This was a special school for both orphans and children of very poor families. Here I learned to read and write in a short time. But the practical things like carpentry, wood carving and painting, I was unable to grasp. And this worried me, because I wanted to be of some help to my mother by working after school and earning some money. He did get the opportunity to earn that much-needed money, but from an unusual source. Serving Mass every morning at the Convento de la Maddalena, the home of the Augustinian nuns, he caught the attention of Don Alonso Alvarez de Toledo, the administrator of the Hospital de las Bubas. He offered the boy a job as a part-time nurse's helper at the hospital and... I accepted gratefully, for it was an opportunity to prove my willingness to help my family. It was also an opportunity to help and comfort the sick and dying. And at Las Bubas, there were many sick and dying. The hospital had been founded to treat those suffering from contagious and terminal diseases, mainly venereal. And with the relatively primitive medication available, there was much unalleviated suffering. The sensitive, caring teenager loved his work. The place was so crowded that very often, when there were no beds available, people took their own straw mattresses and pillows and came there just to die. And their condition was so terrible open sores and great physical pain, but also great mental torment, anger and frustration and rejection by their relatives. I fed and bathed them and dressed their wounds, though very often I felt repelled by the hideousness of it all. But I persevered, giving special attention to those who had no friends or relatives to visit them. Working with those destitute sufferers taught John the real values of life. In Las Bubas, he grew up, became a man. He was full of apostolic zeal, though he never once saw the patients as mere objects of that zeal, but as people. People I grew to love and respect, seeing how they related to me and to each other, almost at the point of death, taught me so much about human nature and life. Years later, Imprisoned by his own Carmelite brothers, 
tortured and starved, he wrote his poem, The Dark Night of the Soul. And in writing it, he remembered all the many nights he had sat in Las Bubas and held the hand of some dying man or woman. O night that led me, guiding night, O night far sweeter than the dawn, O night that did so then unite the lover with his beloved, transforming lover in beloved. I lay quite still, all memory lost, I reclined on my loved one's breast, I knew no more in my abandonment, I threw away my care, and left it all forgotten among the lilies fair. The boy's mentor, Dan Alonso, was very impressed by his work at the hospital. Then one day he found John, during a break from work in the wards, studying in the loft of a barn that was part of the hospital complex. A little later, just after his 17th birthday, Don Alonso arranged that he enter the newly opened Jesuit school. Here he advanced his knowledge of grammar and began the study of rhetoric and metaphysics, while continuing to work part-time at the hospital. His teacher was a young Jesuit priest, not much older than himself. Fray Juan Bonifacio. Fray Juan was more than just a teacher. He was a friend. And during the four years of my study, his intellectual stimulation caused me to reflect on my life and what direction it might take. During those four years with the Jesuits, John grew in spirit and developed in personality. Physically, he remained small, only four foot ten inches high and sparsely built. Already, he was beginning to understand the true meaning of... Asceticism. To be free of all attachments, all things, in order to love them the more deeply, even passionately. In his spiritual canticle, he remembers those first tentative steps toward a holy spiritual and religious life. Ah, who will be able to heal me? End by holy, surrendering yourself. Do not send me any more messengers. They cannot tell me what I wish to hear. All those who are free keep telling me a thousand graceful things of you. All wound me more, and of something I know not that they are stammering leaves me dying. In 1563, by the time he had finished his studies with the Jesuits, John had decided on his future. He joined the Carmelites at the monastery of the Conventa de Santa Anna in Medina del Campo. Having already studied Latin and Spanish classics with the Jesuits, I went straight away into the novitiate. There, one of the first books I studied was the Liber de Institutione Primorum Monacorum, known as the Book of the First Monks. This was a major cornerstone for the Carmelite spirituality, second only to the rule of Carmel in importance. It was mandatory for all us novices to study this, to help mould us in the great spiritual tradition of Carmel. Central to the Book of the First Monks is the command given to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 3-4. Depart from hence, go eastward, and hide in the brook Kareth, which is over against the Jordan. There you shall drink of the torrent, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there.
In his comments on the text, the writer stated that Carmelite life required a real detachment, a freedom of heart, a renunciation of sin and self. It should be a life based in love of God and neighbor. For me, that seemed the ascetical ideal, to offer to God a pure and holy heart, and it also seemed to me that it would lead on to the mystical ideal, the experiencing in the mind and heart the presence of God, which is, of course, pure gift. The powerful myth of the Carmelite order, the primitive rule, all attracted John, with his predilection for silence, solitude and contemplation. But many members of the community considered him to be too intense, too devout and too severe on both himself and others. For instance, he would often remind, albeit in the kindest way, his fellow novices if he thought they were too relaxed in observing certain aspects of the rule. He was, consequently, considered to be something of an enigma. However, he took his vows in 1564 and, for the three years before his ordination, was sent to study at the University of Salamanca. While in Salamanca, I resided at the Carmelite College of San Andreas and I was constantly shocked and saddened at the lax observance of the rule there. I was also well aware that my own severe asceticism disturbed others in the community. And all that time I longed for a return to the old strict way of life which had become eroded over the centuries by constant official mitigation. Shortly after his ordination in 1567, this growing sense of distance from other members of his community and his deeply contemplative nature led him to consider joining the Carthusians at Monasterio Paula near Segovia. This was the point at which that first meeting with La Madre took place, a meeting that was to change his mind about joining any other order, a meeting that was to tear the Carmelite order apart. Some little time before my meeting with Fray Juan de la Cruz, the new general of the Carmelite order, Fray John Baptiste Rossi, visited me in Avila. He encouraged me to continue my reform of the Carmelite sisters and authorised the founding of two reformed communities for friars. Fray Juan having agreed to wait, I set about finding suitable houses for these foundations. The first of these was at Duruelo, about 25 miles from Avila. La Madre went to see it with the Carmelite father. Although we set out early in the morning, we were unfamiliar with the road and so went to stray. And as little is known of the place, Duruelo, we could find no one to direct us. We travelled all day in the greatest discomfort, for the sun was very strong. I will always remember the fatigue of that long roundabout journey. We arrived only a little before nightfall. When we entered the house, we found it in such a condition that we dare not spend the night there. So dirty was it, and so numerous the harvesters who were about. It had a fair-sized porch, a room divided into two with a loft above, and a little kitchen. And that is all there was of the building, which was to be our monastery. After she had recovered from her initial shock with the dilapidation, La Madre took stock of the place and began to make plans.
I thought that the porch might be made into a church, that the loft would do quite well for a choir, and the friars could sleep in the room below. But my companion, though a much better person than I and a great lover of penance, could not bear the thought of my founding a monastery there. Mother, she said, I am certain that no one, however good and spiritual, could endure this. You must not consider it. The good father who was travelling with us, though he thought as she did, made no objection when I told him what was in my mind. We went then and spent the night in the local church, but so great was our fatigue that we would not spend it in vigil. This hovel, then, was to be the first monastery of the Reform and the new home of Juan de la Cruz. Though naturally disappointed at the ramshackle state of the place, he quickly set to work, together with the prior, to get the house habitable. We made the porch into a church. The lower room we made into a dormitory, leaving space near the church end for two confessionals. In the dormitory we put our beds, which were made of straw and an old blanket placed on the floor. For pillows we used pieces of wood, with two or three old sacks filled with straw. We divided the kitchen into two parts. In one we made a refectory, with a table covered with placemats for each monk. In the other was the kitchen and utensils. The attic we made into a choir room, but when the snow came it fell into the attic itself. All in all, a place in harmony with the spirit of a man who had such a desire to return to the primitive rule. They were joined by three other friars, and the little community of five settled down to live the new rule. Silence, fasting, and mental prayer formed a large part of their lives, lives lived out in a genuine attempt to return to the conditions on Mount Carmel when the Carmelites were founded. Those original Carmelites had been truly followers of Christ, men who, literally, went into a deserted place, the Wadai Aines Sai on Mount Carmel in Israel, to be alone with God. These men shared everything, their vision and their lives, and fraternity was an integral part of being a Carmelite. This little community, in this first foundation of the Reform, had truly recaptured the spirit of the original Carmelites. This was evident when La Madre paid a visit en route to Toledo. I arrived in the morning. The prior was sweeping out the church porch with that happy expression which never leaves him. How is this, father, I said to him. Whatever has become of your dignity? And he answered in these words, which showed me how very happy he was. I cursed the time when I had any. Then I went into the little church and was amazed to see what spirituality the Lord had inspired there. This interlude at Duruelo was probably the closest John ever came to his ideal of what the life of a Carmelite friar should be. It had all the elements of that life, the hard physical work of getting the house ready, the silence, the long hours of meditation, the fasting, the going out to nearby towns to preach the word to the people, the feeling of fraternity. 
and all the elements of the contemplative and apostolic life in perfect equilibrium. There was the added joy for John of having his mother, brother and sister-in-law working and living at the monastery. They helped with the domestic chores, cooking, laundering and maintenance. But after little more than a year at Duruelo, John was moving on again, moving on inexorably towards the traumatic and turbulent period that was to bring him through his dark night of the soul. After Duruelo, Fran Juan de la Cruz helped establish an novitiate in another reformed house in Pastrana. His stay in Pastrana was brief, as he was appointed rector of the Colegio de San Cirillo in Alcala de Henares. About this time, I was appointed prioress of the Incarnacion, the convent in Avila where I had originally entered religion and left ten years ago to begin the reform. My first act on arriving back there was to have Fray Juan de la Cruz appointed as one of the confessors to the nuns. The other confessor was also a discalced friar, Fray Germán de Santo Matia. We lived, Fray Germán and I, in a workman's hut on the edge of the convent property. It was a busy life, saying mass, hearing confessions, teaching catechism in the schools, counselling religious and townspeople, and travelling to other convents of the Reform to hear confessions. There was little time for silence and contemplation, but I did it gladly to further their reform. At this time, John's time as confessor to the convent of the Incarnacion, storm clouds were gathering for the Carmelite reform. Though it had originally been supported by the leaders of the order, it was now thought that it was being stubbornly carried too far. The reform was expressly forbidden to open new foundations in Andalusia. Yet the Apostolic Commissioner, Francisco Vargas, has authorised the foundation of houses in Seville, Granada and La Pianuela. This is a monstrous abuse of the trust reposed in those who head this reform. Indeed, we have been reliably informed that even within the ranks of these discalced friars, all is not well. There is much disagreement regarding the extent of the contemplative lifestyle some of the extremists and fanatics are attempting to establish. The majority would prefer to incorporate more of the apostolic life in the new rule. Extreme ascetics like Fray Juan de la Cruz would wish the more strictly contemplative lifestyle. That is what they want. And perhaps they're in the wrong order. Maybe they should have joined the Carthusians or just disappeared into the desert to live their eremitic life. So John became a focal point for the members of the observance in their bitter disputes with the reformers. He had been a founding member of the first house of the primitive rule for friars. As confessor at the Incarnacion, he was in a position of great power in terms of influencing the sisters to join the reform. He had been La Madre's nominee for the post, and those who could not get at her because of her position found it much easier to make John the scapegoat. He was a natural target for their annoyance and frustration. But during those first months at the Incarnacion, I was not aware of this growing antipathy. We got on with our lives, Frey, German, and myself. We were in constant close touch with the townspeople whose houses were near our own. Soon the townspeople came to know the small, emaciated friar in the peculiar, unfamiliar, rough habit. His gaunt features gave a false impression of severity. In reality, they discovered him to be a gentle, kind, and sensitive man, 
and they came to him with their problems. Some of these problems were rather unusual. One evening, as I was eating supper in our little hermitage, I heard someone approaching through the garden. I turned to find a very beautiful young woman standing in the doorway. She lived in the city, and I had seen her many times at my mass in the convent, and also in the street. I greeted her, and in reply she surprised me by blurting out her desire to have me for her lover. She had loved me from a distance. She said, for many months, and wondered if I felt the same way about her. The poor woman was so sincere and honest that I sat her down and talked with her calmly and gently. When she went back down the hill, she understood fully why the kind of relationship she wished for was not possible. When John related this story to his friend, Fray Juan Evangelista, during the last months of his life, he told him how tremendously attracted he had been to this young woman, that he sublimated his natural feeling and treated her with such gentleness and understanding is remarkable. On another occasion, a young nun came to him, troubled about her passionate involvement with a man in the city. John's influence was such that she broke with the man and renewed her commitment to God. This infuriated her friend, and some nights later John was severely beaten as he walked from the convent to his hermitage. Then, early the following year, in the extreme cold just after Christmas, the two friars had other nocturnal visitors. We were praying together when they broke the door down, some friars from the Calcid Monastery and the city wall, a couple of policemen and some city people. They took us to their monastery, we were both lashed twice with a whip and thrown into monastic cells. Next day, Frey German was taken to San Pablo near Medina del Campo, and I was taken to Toledo. The Toledo Monastery of the Calst Friars, to which John was taken, housed 80 monks, a huge, rambling place with ample room for 20 more. Yet he was incarcerated in a tiny, airless closet, six feet by ten and without a window. Here he was starved on a diet of bread and water, with occasional scraps from the monk's table. Every Friday he was dragged to the refectory, where he was given bread and water, kneeling on the stone floor, while the monks sat round and ate their food and listened to the spiritual reading for the day. The meal finished, the harangue, the inquisition, would start in the presence of the whole community of eighty monks. You... Juan de la Cruz, are but a rebellious and stubborn man who desires nothing but your own fame and honour. You are destroying all that is good in Holy Mother Church and our own community of Carmel. Besieged by others from without, you, Juan, weaken it from within. Obedience, the cornerstone of religious life, is trampled underfoot by you. All you contemplators have been ordered by the general chapter of Piacenza not to establish new houses, not to wear a different habit, not to accept novices, but still you persist in your satanically inspired ways and scandalize your order. How can you maintain your satanic stance in the face of the, the, the horrors you are causing?
At this point, all the monks would stand and begin chanting the Miserere. The Inquisitor would strip the habit from John's shoulders and one by one, the monks would file past the helpless, kneeling figure, each one lashing the bare shoulders with a short, knotted, triple rope. Those who felt him guilty put all the force they could into that one blow. Others, believing this treatment to be too harsh and inhuman, touched him as gently as they could. When the last blow had been struck, the harangue continued. Repent of your disobedience, Juan de la Cruz. We will forgive you and take you back into our very hearts. Work now with us to preserve the faith in a world that is so possessed by Satan and his cohorts. Repent, repent of your disobedience. We only ask that you exercise your vow and the virtue of obedience and simply follow the commands of the legate, your superiors and the general chapter. Admit your disobedience and follow the orders of your church and once again you will serve Holy Mother Church as she deserves to be served. Repent, one, Repent! By the time he was led back to his closet, his shoulders were raw and streaming with blood. And as the weeks and months went by, his condition deteriorated. The bucket used as a toilet would be left unemptied for days in his cell till the stench was overpowering. He suffered from dysentery. Sometimes he doubted. Maybe I am wrong. Perhaps they are right. Am I to be sent to hell for evil recalcitrant ways? Am I to be separated from my God and my beloved church for no reason at all? Am I perhaps serving the demons themselves? La Madre was devastated. She wrote to King Felipe II, outlining the facts of the arrest and begging his intervention. I am terribly saddened to see him in calced hands. I would feel better if he were a prisoner of the Moors, because he would then perhaps be treated better. Fray Juan is so fine a servant of God, and he is so thin from all that he has suffered that I am afraid he will die. But he did not die. Though the king did not intervene to save him, fate did, in the form of a new jailer. This friar was one of those who touched him lightly with the lash on Fridays. He was sympathetic. He brought John writing materials, and so the spiritual canticle came to be written. If then I am no longer seen or found on the common, you will say that I am lost, that wandering love-stricken I lost my way and was found. One of the greatest, most mystical, most lyrical love poems of all time, written in a filthy prison cell, a place without light or heat or even air, and, miraculously, the exchanges between bride and bridegroom are evocative of all that is most wonderful in nature. Away with them, beloved, for I am taking flight. Drive off those little foxes, for our vineyard is now in flower, while we make a pine-like cluster of roses, and let no one appear on the hill. Let us rejoice, beloved, and let us go forth to behold ourselves in your beauty to the mountain and to the hill, to where the pure water flows, and further, let us enter deep into the thicket. 
The small white dove has returned to the ark with an olive branch, and now the turtle dove has found its longed-for mate by the green river banks. John himself described the spiritual canticle as a person's journey towards God in three stages. The initial steps in the service of God, continuing into the spiritual marriage and thence to the ultimate state of perfection. The purgative, illuminative and unitive stages. The bride is the soul and Christ the bridegroom. He had passed through this period of self-doubt now and was convinced of the validity of the reform and determined not to break under the bullying of his fellow Carmelites. On the eve of the Feast of the Assumption, he asked if he could say Mass on the feast day. He received the reply, Not in my lifetime, you wrote. That was when I decided I must escape, for no one would release me from this place of torment. And impossible though escape seemed, he succeeded. Ill, weak and disoriented, he wandered about the streets in the early dawn, searching for the convent of the discalced Carmelite nuns. He waited in a courtyard near the convent, and when he heard the sisters being called to morning prayer, he went to the turnstile and said to the portress, Daughter, I am Fray Juan de la Cruz. I have just escaped from jail. Please tell the superior that I am here. From then until his death, thirteen years later, John continued in various administrative posts. Though the discalced Carmelites were operating independently now, John continued to argue against placing the contemplative life second to apostolic work. Because of his outspokenness and his utter conviction that what he was doing was right, he had many enemies, both inside and outside, discalced ranks. After many years, the case against John was reopened with the specific aim of having him expelled from the discalced Carmelites. The Inquisition continued, even though his health was obviously failing rapidly and death not far off. The Inquisitor was attempting to discredit John and falsify Nunn's testimony. By the end of September, 1591, he was nearing the end. He wrote to his friend and patroness, Doña Ana de Mercado y Penalosa, I received here, in La Penuela, the packet of letters the servant brought me. I greatly appreciate your concern. Tomorrow I am going to Ubida for the cure of a slight bout of fever, since it has been returning each day now for more than a week, and does not leave me. It seems I shall need the help of medicine." Yet I plan to return her immediately, for I am indeed very happy in this holy solitude. Two days later, he was diagnosed as having erysipelas. Painful sores broke out all over his body. The physician had to cut and scrape away the infected areas and remove the deceased flesh. With no anaesthetic available, the pain was intolerable. Yet John uttered not a sound. After that, his condition worsened. A new infection took hold and the flesh oozed with pus. On December 14, 1591, Fray Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross, died. His last words, just before he died, as he was pulling himself upright in bed, were, Thank God I am light. When the Inquisitor was told of John's death, he expressed regret that, 
Death has taken him before I could achieve my goal of having him expelled from the order. John was buried in Ubida. The drama that had attended most of his life still continued. His patroness and close friend, Doña Ana de Penalosa, felt that his remains should rest in Segovia and not in Obida. She used her influence to achieve this transfer. When the grave was opened, nine months after burial, the body was found to be intact, so a finger was cut off and sent to Doña Anya, and the body remained in Obida. In 1593, the remains were finally removed secretly by night to Segovia. There was a tumultuous welcome for Fray Juan's body in Segovia, but the people of Obida were outraged. An argument ensued. This was resolved by the superiors of the discalced Carmelites. They proposed that the body should be dismembered and the torso and head remain in Segovia, while the arms and legs be sent back to Obida. Incredibly, that is what was done. 